So we are, uh, those of you that weren't with us last week, we have picked back up into our journey through the book of Acts. We began this journey back in the fall. We had gone through about, well, now we're through 11 weeks, and we picked back up. We had taken a little break uh, for uh, Advent, some other things, and we kind of started everything back up again last last week. And I told you from the very beginning of this journey through the book of Acts is it's a really powerful one. And even through the sort of first quarter of the book, which we're just barely through, we've seen some of the most incredible sort of beautiful pictures, pictures of, of lives that are called to follow Jesus in this sort of tangible, radical, kind of ridiculously dangerous, but amazing way. And the interesting thing about the book of Acts is that it's not just a picture of what the church looked like some 2,000 years ago, but it's actually a call for all Christ followers. It's a call for you, it's a call for me, it's a call for our church. It's, it's a call of people that say yes to Jesus, and it's incredibly relevant for us. And it's a journey. It's a journey that has no real end in sight, but it's sort of a, a movement of what it looks like if I'd said yes to Jesus with my whole heart and life. And we've seen some really remarkable things happen. And last week, we sort of jumped back in with both feet, and we landed in the middle of this uncomfortable, kind of difficult passage that really left us, I think, or at least with me, with more questions than it did answers. And we look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira and and this sort of the reality of what sin looks like in opposition to the holiness of God. And so for those of you that weren't here, the quick little recap of that story is that Ananias and Sapphira had this piece of land and they sold it. And like a lot of the believers did in those days, they gave their possessions to the commonality or the sort of communal nature of the community. They gave things away and people didn't have needs. We look at this in Acts 2 and Acts 4 as people lived life together. They gave their resources together to make sure they were living in kind of continuity. And they gave their hearts to each other and they oftentimes sold land. We learned of a guy named Barnabas who sold land, gave all the money to the apostles. Well, Ananias and Sapphira did the same thing. They had a piece of property, and they sold it, and they brought the money to the apostles. But before they did that, they had this little conversation, and they said, hey, we're not going to give it all, right? We're just going to give part of it. So they brought part of the money and uh, basically looked at Peter and said, here's all the money. Peter basically said, no, it's not all the money. And they said, sure it is. And he said, no, it's not. Not only are you lying to us and to the church, but you're lying to God. And Ananias dropped dead, literally dropped dead dead. They carried off his body. His wife came in, not knowing that this had happened some three hours later, and she comes and she says, hey, did you get the money? And Peter's like, yeah, we got it. Was that all the money that you had? And they said, she said, of course it was. And he said, look, it's tragedy that you guys have lied not only to the church and to us, but you've lied to the Holy Spirit of God. And she dropped dead, and they carried her off. And everybody in the whole church and all around the area was petrified. And our story ends and we, had, we were left with sort of this uncomfortable nature of what do we do with a story like that in Scripture that begs a lot of questions. And so we looked at three things, really, to kind of give light into this picture. We looked at the holiness of God. We looked at the severity and the reality of sin and the beauty of grace. And what we landed on at the end of the day was that the holiness of God is in stark contrast to the reality and severity of human sinfulness. But the beauty of grace is that God has provided a way that we all in our sinfulness deserve the wrath of God, but God through the person and life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has provided a way. Now, I don't have answers as to why things had to unfold the way they did, why God's wrath was so swift in that circumstance. But the reality was, we landed on this, that God's holiness 
majestic, mighty, amazing, miraculous God, right? In, all, in contrast to our sinful humanity, those things don't exist. But the beauty of grace is that we all deserve that. We all have lied to God. We all have sinned and broken God's moral commands for us to live according to the, his perfect purity. We deserve God's wrath. But God has provided a way for us. Now, if you want to hear that whole thing, you can go back and listen to it on the website. But the idea that I want you to understand is that we are in the wake of that. So chapter 5 is coming right, sort of all these things are coming together. And what we're going to see today is in the wake of what transpired in 1 through 12 or 1 through 11. You have to look at Scripture in its kind of contextual entirety, right? The way we hop around Scripture all the time, it's a wonder that we even get a, a picture of what's unfolding. We can't read these verses that we're going to look at today without understanding sort of the awe and the fear and the reverence that was attached to what was unfolding with the power of God. Okay, so chapters or verses 1 through 11 shed light on where we're going. Now, that being said, we're going to look at a huge piece of text today. All right, we're going to try and get through, we will get through 30 plus verses. And the reason we're going to do it this way is because it's just one long story. I actually tried to divide it up in like two weeks, but the reality is it just goes together. And when I break it up, it loses some of its life. All right, so we're going to see one long interaction, and instead of kind of reading it and then going back through it, we'll just sort of read it and, and go with it as, as we kind of move through it a little bit. So sometimes as we kind of journey through books like this, we have to look at these stories in their entirety. All right, so if you got your Bible, I want you to open Acts chapter 5, and let's start in verse, wherever we left off, 12 would be perfect. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here today. We thank you for your word, which is living and active. We thank you, God, that even when it's challenging or difficult, or God, when even uh, when it's things that we have struggles with or have a hard time hearing, it doesn't make it any less true. So God, I ask you to speak to our hearts this morning as we look at your word, that you would instruct our hearts, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted and, and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Take a moment in your life, in your heart, right as you sit there, and as we do each week, just ask God to teach you, to reveal truth to you, to show his face to you, whatever that looks like. God, Move in that. So pray that. Pray that God would teach you this morning. Pray for someone beside you, around you. Maybe you know the name, maybe you don't. Be in the habit of praying for other people right now. this is your word and the truth. May we build our lives upon it. We want to apply it to our lives. So teach us, instruct us, reveal truth to us through this. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. So we're going to start in verse 12. We're going to kind of break this up as we go, but it's there's a little bit of a sort of a preamble and then a much kind of longer story that we're going to work through. <clears throat> so we're coming on the heels of this Ananias and Sapphira kind of debacle, and debacle in, in terms of how everybody was seeing it. There was fear that was sort of moving the church, and they were moved by this reverence and awe. And last week, we left everything by saying fear of God, the fear of God, how we are called to relate to God, was not this petrifying, like I'm afraid of the dark or monsters under my bed, but instead this fear that was driven by reverence and awe, right? Reverence and worship that said, 
God in this holy kind of amazing mystery and me and all of my sinfulness, when I put those things in the same sentence, I recognize that I can't even be in his presence. And that sort of awe-inspiring movement of God is where we begin. It's what reverence is. And it should always drive us to worship, right? And so we left things there, and that's what the church is stirred to. This is what we see in verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers met together and Sol- the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick in the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns and around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. We've got this little bridge text here that's going to lead us into this next story. But you're beginning to see glimpses here that this is no longer a little movement of strange people teaching strange things, doing sort of stranger type events and stuff, which is how the movement began. What are these people doing? They're talking in weird languages. They're huddled together. We're now beginning to see this movement take public kind of prominence, and God's power is on full display. And we're going to begin to see opposition. As they rise up in Jerusalem, both in presence and in sort of power, we're going to begin to see opposition. But what we see here is that the believers were gathering in this place called Solomon's Colonnade, also known as Solomon's Porch. We should recognize those terms because Jesus taught there quite a bit. And just in chapters 4, this is where Peter and James were when they were arrested, when they had healed the crippled, uh, formerly crippled, now healed person. They were standing there together and they they were arrested right there in the same spot. Well, they believed, they returned there, but the text tells us that no one else dared join them there, right? Now, we're not talking about the fact that no one joined their numbers. In fact, in verse 13, we see that many men and women were added to their numbers and the church was growing. But no one at that time dared show up in the middle of the temple with this group of people. Probably for a couple of reasons. One, think about what just happened, right? With Ananias and Sapphira. You want to go hang out with those people, right? The power of what was unfolding and also the power of the sort of opposition, the religious institution. This was a dangerous place to be. But what this tells us is this. There were no half-hearted or sort of pretending or social Christians that didn't exist. The first century church was not a social experiment. It was not a social group of people that gathered together to get some kind of benefit. These were not half-hearted movements. When you gave your life to Christ, you went all in, and that may cost you everything. So they didn't just hang around with this group of people for the social benefits. You and I in our Western church culture are driven by our social experience with church. We join churches for the singles ministries. We join churches for the kids ministries. We join churches for what they have to offer on this, this, or that. We we oftentimes are driven to church because we don't want to have to answer the questions from other people. Where were you? Right? Church is a social engagement for most of us. We engage just enough to feel like we're giving our lives. We give just enough out of our abundance to feel like we've done something, but it doesn't cost us anything. We read the Bible just enough to feel like God is kind of giving us a little wisdom, but when we come to passages that are hard or difficult, we call them outdated. The reality is is that our Christian life, for many of us, is steeped in our social experience with church. In the first century, there was no social experience with church. They did not join this community for the benefits. 
what we will see as Acts unfolds is that when they gave their lives to church, to Christ, most of them would lose their lives. They didn't do this half-heartedly. We saw this firsthand. We took a team several times to China. When we met believers in China, there was no social movement that drew them together. When they said they were professing Christians, most likely it would cost them their family, their jobs, some of them even their freedoms. We take this for granted like crazy. But this was unfolding in the, in the early church, and, and people, they were driven by this. If I'm going all in, then I want all of my heart to be in. There's no first century social Christians. So they gathered there, hardcore, intense. God was adding to their number, and they were growing both in presence and power. And then this sort of movement of healings began, right? They continued the ministry that Jesus did. As Jesus went around the countryside, he would lay his hands on those that were sick. People would bring him the sick, the broken, the blind, the mute, the deaf, the whatever, and they would lay them down, and Jesus would heal them. And this ministry that the apostles are a part of was a continuation of Jesus' ministry. Remember in Acts 1, when Jesus looks at this group of people, and he says, listen, you will be my witnesses. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the very ends of the earth. We see the Great Commission unfolding in Matthew 28. We see the power of the Holy Spirit that is now entered into the church, and the church is carrying on the mission, and those healings are happening. Now, it's interesting because we see some things kind of in a peculiar way unfolding in this text that we don't see many other places. They bring their sick and those that are tormented, and they bring them, and they lay them in the streets and on mats so that even Peter's shadow as he passes by might fall on them. And all of them were healed. Now, a little bit of a word about this kind of healing, because we don't see this a lot unfolding in Scripture anywhere else, right? Even in Paul, we, in chapter 19, we see one other instance where handkerchiefs that were laid on Paul's body were later laid on people's bodies and they were healed. But these are really the sort of only two kind of peculiar instances where healings like this were unfolding. Don't really have an answer as to why we don't see more of it. But as they laid these people down, Peter would pass by and they were healed. And of course, it has nothing to do with Peter, right? Peter's not some super holy thing. We've seen all of his sort of flaws throughout the gospel movement. But one thing is is certain, right? And one thing is certain that people seem to get in the New Testament, and that is this, and that is God's power is real. Healings were never done for the sake of the physical healing, right? That was certainly part of the expression, but healings were done as a demonstration of God's power, as a demonstration of God's restoration, and to bring God glory. It's what the movements were. That's what these healings took place. They were for God's glory. They weren't for the benefit of that person. They were a demonstration of God's power, the redemptive nature of what God was doing, and to bring God glory. One thing was kind of certain. The, Old Testament, or the New Testament church grasped this idea, and that was this. God was in absolute and total control, and his power was very real. And if we believed that God was bigger than we thought, he would oftentimes do more than we dared to imagine. Although that wasn't always the case. People still died. People still got sick. But God's power showed up when God wanted to and in the way, that God, in, the way in which God wanted it to. Now this is important because in our democratic kind of thinking, we think that if God works one way, he should work that way for everyone. But if you read scripture, that's not really how things unfold. In just a few verses, a few chapters, we're going to see Peter and James get into some trouble. And James is going to die, and Peter's going to live. We're going to see an, an, an evangelist named Philip get stoned to death. 
Just a few verses earlier, we saw saw Ananias and Sapphira die at the wrath of God that came swift and quick, and there are no answers. What we're getting ready to see here is that God is going to free Peter and some from prison. But you know what? That isn't always the case. God does not always intersect our, str- intersect our struggles and overcome them. Sometimes we are stuck in the middle of those pain, in the middle of that hurt. But one thing is certain, God's power is real, and they believe deeply in it. So we've got this sort of movement that's unfolding, and I say all that to put us in this place. As they grew in presence and power, was on the rise. So let's look at verse 17. The high priests and the associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out and go, he said, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. So the Sadducees, right, which are part of the religious ruling council along with the Pharisees and the scribes, they are incensed with jealousy. And they're incensed with jealousy because Jesus, as I'll talk about a little later, is a threat. Jesus is a threat to our comfort and he's a threat to our systems. And they hated the fact that this little group of people was now growing and numbering multitudes of thousands. And that it didn't go away when they crucified Christ. And he was a very threat to their way of life. And here they are standing in the temple courts again after they had just told them some one and a half chapters earlier, to never talk about Jesus again. And they were standing there, and not only were they doing it, but they were healing people. And people had come from all the surrounding towns and laid people in the streets. I mean, imagine the scene. Sick people lying in the streets, the apostles walking around, people being healed, running, jumping. And the religious leaders were incensed, and they were steeped in jealousy. And so they said, fine, we're going to arrest them again. They want to play this game? We'll play it. So they had them arrested and put in jail. In the public jail, which was rough, rough. Had them put in the public jail. And during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors, brought them out, said, go stand in the temple courts. They did exactly that. They went back out there to the temple courts, same place they had been arrested from, and they began to talk about this new life. Verse 21, as daybreak entered the temple, they entered the temple courts, and as they had been told, they began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, which is the huge kind of ruling Jewish council, 70-ish people. They assembled all the elders of Israel and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, right? So they went back and reported, we have found the jail securely locked and the guards standing at the gates. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard came to the chief priest and they were puzzled and they wondered what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing at the temple courts teaching the people. And at that, the captain and his officers brought the apostles. But they didn't use force because they were afraid that the people would stone them. So the Sanhedrin gets together. The Sadducees go around and they get all the elders, all 70-ish of them, and they gather together. And this time, they're serious. Last time they gathered together, they didn't give them any punishment. They just told them, don't talk about Jesus. They said, listen, is it right for us to obey God or to obey men? Thank you for the inquiry. We're moving on. And happening again. So they have them arrested, thrown in jail. They go back, they gather together, and they go, go get those guys. They go to the jail, and of course, the doors are locked. The guards are standing there, but no one is inside, right? Somewhat familiar to what took place in the resurrection. Guards are still there. Stone is rolled back, right? The whole thing. They're gone. They're all puzzled. What's going on? Guards come back, and they said, we went. They're not there. 
Somebody comes running in. No, 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 no. They're in the temple courts, and they're teaching the people. Go get them. This time they don't use force because there was such a movement with the people, right, that if they grabbed them, seized them, and arrested them, the people would revolt. I mean, think about it. You're somebody, just some random person, and you've got a, a sister-in-law who is sick. I mean, real sick. And you brought that sister-in-law, and you laid her in the middle of the street, and these incredible men that you don't know much about are talking about this Jesus. And all of a sudden, your sister-in-law is healed, and things are different. Or maybe you've given your life to this new movement, and here come the religious leaders, and they seize them. This was going to cause an uproar. The people were not going to have it. So the guards come, and they kind of put their arms around them. Hey, you guys want to come with us? You know, we're going to go over here. Chuck E. Cheese or whatever. And so they all follow that way, right? They know what's going on. But they don't use force, right? And uh, because they're afraid of the people. Having brought the apostles, verse 27, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin and questioned them by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him by his own right hand as prince and savior. He might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit of God, who is given, oh, who are given to those who obey, who is given to those who obey him. So they seize him again. And the high priest says, we told you not to talk about Jesus. And Peter says, listen, we told you we don't have a choice. We're supposed to obey God. Listen, this is the God of our forefathers. He's saying, listen, not the God of the apostles and this new little movement of people, but all of ours. This is God of our forefathers. And we are called to obey him. Right? This is the story. This is what we've got to do which, of course, is incenses the Sanhedrin because they basically said the Holy Spirit of God is for everyone. Well, if there's anything the religious elite believed, they believed that the Holy Spirit or that God's presence was for them, the religious, and they could kind of dispense it as they felt needed. You know, one of the great ironies, if you ever read church history, which most of us probably don't read church history, one of the great ironies is that the greatest opposition to the gospel and the greatest opposition to Christ, the purity of Christ, and the purity of the gospel throughout history for 2,000 years, even today, comes at the hands of the clergy. Power is a poison pill. Even in the midst of our movement of churches today, look around. Power, right, is a poison. And most of the opposition to the purity of the gospel, the purity of Christ, comes at the hand of the people that are called to lead it. I'm probably soapbox run out of time. But it's just interesting to me. And this is happening throughout history, and it begins here. The religious leaders are the greatest opposition to the movement and purity of the gospel because it threatens their very way of life. Think about our power structure in our churches. What's the greatest opposition to the gospel? Power of people in charge, right? Fascinating. Okay, so anyway, he goes on and says this. So the, they replied, look, to obey God, verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious, and they wanted them put to death. This group has the power to do that. They did that to Christ, right? They wanted him put to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up to the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be put outside a little while. And then he addressed the men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thutius appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him, and he was killed and his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared, and through, and, and the days of the census, and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. 
Therefore, the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for their purpose or activity is from human origin. It will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So Gamaliel may sound familiar. He's a really important guy. He had one very famous disciple who was Saul of Tarsus, who would later become Paul. He was the most renowned rabbi in the whole area, probably in the whole known world. And he was renowned for his wisdom and his sage advice. And he says, okay, time out. Before we put him to death, guys, go outside for a second. Let's just get a chit-chat. They get together and they say, he says, listen, think about what's unfolding. Before you put them to death, take this seriously. Think about the people that have come before them, that have had little movements or little revolts. And he gives a couple of examples. He says, listen, if there's a human origin, it will fail, right? But if it's of God, beware, because you will find yourself fighting against God. Of course, he's only about part correct, about half correct, right? There's been throughout history, there been many movements, religious movements that aren't of God, that are of human origin, that have flourished depending on your definition of success and are even still very much around today. Right, But what he was really kind of correct about was that from an eternal perspective, right, if this movement is of God, it cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be ceased by human hands. There's one thing that's eternally certain. Although churches and church members may fall, the church, big C of Jesus Christ, will forever and always be victorious. The power of the Holy Spirit, resurrection, basically says, listen, Let's just let it play out, right? So he kind of wins them over a little bit. Verse 40, his speech persuaded them, called the apostles in, had them flogged. Now you got to remember, flogging is not a couple of spankings. The Jewish penalty of death was 40 lashes or higher. They handed out penalties of 39 minus 1, which is exactly, or 40 minus 1, which is 39, which is exactly what they did to Jesus. And flogging was a, a process by which they took a stick and they tied a whole bunch of leather straps onto it, right? And they usually interwove bone and things like that. And they would take you publicly in front of everyone. And they would beat you to an inch of your life. And basically say, anybody else want to follow these people? They had them all flogged. Not spanked, not ridiculed, beaten to the point of almost death. They ordered them again to never speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. This is a long but powerful glimpse into what life was like as a first century follower of Christ. I don't know what your life today looks like as a follower of Christ, but I'm guessing that it looks nothing like that. Mine certainly doesn't, right? This is an incredible picture. And there's about a hundred things that I could spend time lifting up out here, but I just want to show you two things that I think are really relevant for us today. Okay, the first is this. The cultural mandate never changes. So two chapters ago, we see the exact thing happen. Peter and James had just healed this guy. The Sanhedrin was furious. They seized them. They arrest them, right? They accuse them. And they basically say, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Same exact thing happens. They go back to the temple courts. They pull them back in and they say, look, quit talking about Jesus. And it's a cultural mandate. And it's a mandate to stop talking about this name because this name is problematic. 
This name breaks up our systems and breaks up our comforts, and it was disrupting the way the religious elite operated. They were perfectly fine with these people being followers of this Jesus. They didn't, just didn't want him them talking about Jesus. That was the problem. And the cultural mandate was, you can exist, just stop talking about Christ. Like, that's all we're asking. We don't really care what else you do, but stop that. Same mandate that was issued just a few chapters earlier. This time, instead of idle threats, they beat the snot out of them in front of everybody. Right? One step away from death. What do you think is coming next? And they issued a mandate. And it wasn't like the Sanhedrin didn't have power. They had power. They could have had them killed. And they will have them killed in the future. The mandate is, stop talking about Jesus. Well, the apostles, coming fresh off the Great Commission, like we talked about, fresh off of Acts chapter 1, where Jesus' last words to them are, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth, are stuck between two worlds. Two very powerful authorities that have given them mandates. One, don't talk about Jesus. The second one, go tell everybody about Jesus. One's going to cost me dearly, physically, possibly my life. The other one's what I've given my whole life to. Well, their response is the same in both. Look, we can't help it. We've got to obey God. God wins. The reality is, in our culture today, the mandate's not a whole lot different. It doesn't have the severe physical penalty attached to it, but we've been culturally trained to not talk about Jesus, right? We've been told that we can express religious freedom and talk about things. We can talk all about religious things, but we can't talk about the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus rattles to the core because it calls into question my me-driven self, our systems of comfort that we've established, and the very nature of what it means to be a person. The name of Jesus rattles. You don't believe me? Next time you're hanging out with your friends, happy hour, whatever, you're not, you're not anybody in here, your church friends, when they say, hey, how about those Sooners? You say, hey, I got a question. What do you guys think about the person of Jesus Christ? Try it. Try it. Wouldn't it do it? Try it and see what happens. You want to talk about uncomfortable? You want to talk about feeling awkward? Bring up the name of Jesus. You can talk around Jesus all you want. No one's going to care. You can talk about Bible. You can talk about mission. You can talk about church. But you drop the name of Jesus in a conversation and things get awkward. The reason for that is because the name of Jesus is what calls into questions all of our comfort and all of our systems. Right? We've been issued the same mandate. Who's the last person in your life, honestly, just honestly think of a name that you share the truth of the gospel with and talk to about Jesus. And I'm not talking about inviting someone to church. I'm actually talking about telling and talking to someone about the God that has saved your life in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you think of their name? The majority of us can't. Because our version of evangelism is to bring somebody to church so that I can do it. The reality is, is that we are all called to be evangelists. We've been issued the cultural mandate, don't talk about Jesus, but we've been issued the Great Commission that says, tell the world about me. And most of us have opted for the dodge the awkward, right, and bring them to my church. It's about as good as we get. Look, I want you to invite people to church. I think that's fabulous because you're inviting them into your world. But I also want you to tell them about the God that has changed you. The cultural mandate hasn't changed in 2,000 years. The punishment in our Western culture may have, certainly not the case around the world. 
We've met and have known people that have lost their lives for the cause of Christ. The cultural mandate is the same some 2,000 years later. Don't talk about Jesus. God's mandate hasn't changed either. Tell the world about my son. So we've got this dilemma we're living in. The second thing that I want you to see in the midst of all this is when it comes to your life, what set of eyes do you use to see? So we've really got two ways we can kind of see the world, two ways we can see our lives, right? Because think about this. As followers of Christ in the first century, they were doing exactly what God had told them to do. Yeah, they were lonely and there weren't a whole lot of them and they were living in community, but they were doing what God had told them to do, right? Go into the temple courts, preach and proclaim the resurrection of Christ, gather together, share your life, and they were living in the middle of that. They were doing exactly what God had told them to do. They were living in the middle of God's revealed will for them. And as they're doing this, they are wrongly accused, they are arrested, slandered, put in prison, and in this case, beaten in front of everybody for doing exactly what God told them to do. Now, there's two ways we can look in that situation. The first way is the woe is me. God, I did exactly what you said. I followed your commands to a T. We went to the temple courts. We did what you told us to do. We talked about Jesus. They came in. They arrested us. They wrongly accused us. They slandered. They beat us, and they imprisoned us. Where are you? If you told me to do this, why are you so absent from my life? Woe is me. Every time I begin to say yes to the Lord, something goes wrong. My financial life falls apart. Relationships fall apart. And I can look at the scenario and say, life is hard. Right? Woe is me. Did what I thought God told me to do. Arrested, beaten, slandered, wrongly accused, and imprisoned. One set of eyes looks at that and says, God, my life is awful. It's terrible. God wasn't in that. He didn't bless that. Because we see God's blessings as fitting into the comfort of our definitions. Things get hard. God's not blessing it. God told them to do that. And then God had them arrested and beaten in the middle of all that. Woe is me. Woe is me, which is how a lot of us live in some variation of that says two things. One, it says, God, this is about me. The second thing, it says, God, I don't trust you. That's what a woe is me outlook in life and on your circumstances says. God, I'm being beaten. God, I've been in prison. God, I've been slandered. God, this is about me. God, my finances are this. God, my relationships are that. God, where are you? Why am I here? I did what you said. Woe is me. Why me? It also says, God, I don't trust you. You said to do this, I did this, and this is where I'm stuck at, I don't believe you keep your promises. That's what it says. The result of that woe is me outlook on your life is it pushes you backwards in your spiritual growth. Because anytime you declare to God, God, this is about me and God, I don't trust you, we are not moving forward. We are at best stagnant and at most regressing in our growth and relationship with Christ. Because we are proclaiming the very things that God calls us to rid our lives of. Now, we don't say them out loud, but that's what it means. We all look at everybody else's life and think they've got it better than we do. I'm one paycheck away from making this thing work. God keeps that one step out of of my grasp. Woe is me. The second way you can see this circumstance is what a joy. Same exact scenario. We did exactly what God said. We went exactly where he told us to go. 
We were wrongly accused, arrested, slandered, beaten, and imprisoned. What a joy. The apostles, as we see, walk out of the presence of the Sanhedrin in front of probably a multitude of about a thousand people, having been publicly scourged for their proclamation of Jesus. And they left the Sanhedrin, verse 41, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name day after day. They went back to the temple courts, house to house, never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news. What a joy. Here's the reality. What a joy proclaims this. God, this is about you, and God, I trust you. That's the very opposite, same scenario, very opposite way of seeing circumstances. I'm not telling you it's easy to do, but what I'm telling you is that you have a choice. You have a choice how you're going to see your life, the kind of eyes you're going to use to look at your life. Sitting in the exact same scenario, whatever it is, hardships, difficulties, struggles, fears, anxieties, worries, whatever, you can look at those things with one of two sets of eyes. You can look at them and say, woe is me, life is hard, life is awful, life is this, I just need that, I'm tired of being alone, whatever it is. God, it's about me and God, I don't trust you. Or you can say, God, what a joy that you have rescued me, that in all of your holiness and the severity of my sinfulness, you made a way for me that whatever's going on, I count it a joy because you have given me life. It doesn't mean the circumstances are easy. It doesn't mean we walk out not having lived with the anxiety that something else will happen. The apostles knew very much so that when they left there and they proclaimed Christ again, it would probably cost them their lives this time. What a joy. Now, I'm not talking about the difference between being an optimist and not being an optimist. I'm not talking about a ridiculous sort of glass half empty, hey, life's hard, but I'm going I'm to smile. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm actually talking about something much more radical. I'm not talking about look at the bright side and just being happy. What I'm saying is that in the middle of your life, you have a decision, a choice to decide what you will choose. Will I choose a me-centered philosophy that says, God, I wrestle with where you are. This is about me. Or God, even in the middle of this crazy, challenging thing, which I have no answers for and I don't know why the things are happening the way they are happening, I choose joy because I know you are bigger than all of that. And I'm not talking about happiness. I'm talking about joy. You know what they found joyful? They didn't find it joyful that they were beaten, that they were arrested, but they found joy that they were able to be disgraced for the name of Christ. They found joy in the deeper peace. Our lives are going to be complicated. They're going to run into difficult things. We're going to have people in our lives that get sick, and God won't heal them. It happens. Can I explain it? No. We can choose to find joy in the deeper peace. God, but I believe you. God, I trust you. God, I believe that you are at work, even in those difficult moments. I've talked a lot about trusting Jesus in the past, so I'm just going to leave that here. Here's where we wrap up. Last kind of little piece of this. We are issued a cultural mandate to not talk about Jesus, to let that happen in its appropriate circles and its appropriate places and make sure we talk around it so that we get enough religion in and amongst our lives to not offend anybody, enough Bible to not make myself feel uncomfortable, enough giving just to feel better at Christmas. But we've been given a cultural mandate to tell the world about Jesus. So which mandate are we living under? To don't talk about him or to tell the whole world about him? And in the middle of that mandate, we're called to live in opposition to that culture. 
And that that culture is the Jesus talking thing or whether it's the way we see material possessions in the world. We're called to live in the opposite of the world's picture of those things. And we have the choice to decide how we're going to see the things in our life. We can say, woe is me, or we can say, what a joy. As difficult as it is at times to say, what a joy. It's to call the Christ follower and say, God, you're bigger, and I trust you. So this morning, whatever you're sitting in the middle of, choose joy. Is joy says, God, this is about you, and I trust you. Doesn't make the difficulty go away. 